Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of You Make Me Sick, a podcast dedicated to, but not exclusively, uh, pathogenic microorganisms. Today, we are going to talk about a pretty nasty gut bug. Uh, this is Shigella. Uh, this is actually a listener request uh, from Ro. Thank you, Ro, in Nevada. I always appreciate your feedback. As always, if anybody else would like to hear anything, uh, any particular microorganisms, or even anything that will make you sick, just uh, let me know. As always, uh, you can email at youmakemesickpod at gmail.com, and we are also on Twitter at makemesickpod. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Shigella. So Shigella, uh, just to start with, it's a gram-negative, non-motile, anaerobic, non-spore-forming rod. Uh, It has four serotypes. Uh, Of these serotypes, they each have their own kind of individual serotypes too, but I won't get uh, that specific. I'll just kind of talk about the four serotypes, uh, A, B, C, and D is how they're labeled. Uh, A is Shigella dysentere. Serotype B is Shigella flexneri. Uh, Type C is Shigella boidi. And type D is Shigella soni. So uh, of all these, the Shigella soni is a little bit different than the other serotypes. Uh, it expresses uh, what the, what's called an oranthine decarboxylase. De- 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 Whoa, that's a tough one. Uh, while the other ones, you can't really differentiate that. So it can actually be different uh, because it has this biochemical marker uh, from the other. It's kind of set aside from the other ones. Um, Sonai is also what's most commonly seen in America here. So uh, I'll kind of get into that in a few minutes here. Uh, it's also, sonai usually causes mild disease, uh, and flexneri and uh, dysentery uh, cause uh, dysentery, shockingly, uh, with bloody diarrhea. So those are the more severe types of shigella. Those are ones that are often seen in more developing countries, uh, where the sonai is one that is usually seen here uh, in the United States in more developed regions. So, Shigella, let's talk about uh, how you get it. Uh, so it is foodborne or waterborne. Uh, the path of transmission is via the what they call fecal-oral route. So it, it sounds like fecal-oral, you know, how did so many people get this? Are they actually eating poop? Uh, no. Uh, typically what will happen is uh, it takes a very small amount of this bacteria to actually, and I'll touch on that in a moment as well, to actually inf- cause infection. Uh, so any just little fecal particles that come in contact with food or water or a doorknob or who knows what else, and then you go near your mouth, you touch it, uh, it can very easily uh, be passed that way. Uh, it's a router transmission that's actually fairly common uh, with a lot of these uh, gut bugs. Uh, so with the fecal oral route, uh, that's usually the most commonly one seen actually in developed countries, believe it or not. And uh, the waterborne or foodborne is usually seen uh, in developing countries. So that's where you have uh, probably less strict rules as far as how food preparation is done, probably not a lot of hand washing, and also a lot of uh, shared water sources too. Uh, if anybody who's listened to our podcast uh, with, uh, with typhoid and typhoid fever, how that was spread a lot of times just through water contamination, and that was also kind of one of these fecally orally transmitted uh, bacteria. Uh, it can also be transmitted sexually. This is usually seen in men who have sex with men just because they're 
just the type of sex that uh, usually anal sex, and then uh, followed by some kind of passing from, uh, you know, fecal oral, as we talked about, or you know, earlier, uh, can also be transmitted by flies. So a fly lands on uh, something that's contaminated with shigella. Fly has a bacteria on it, lands on your food, or near your water, or if you get hungry and eat the fly, uh, can also be transmitted that way. Humans are the only natural reservoir for Shigella, so it's not seen in the animal kingdom um, as of now, outside of humans. Uh, no zoonotic transmission really has been noted for Shigella. So as I talked about earlier, it's really easy uh, to actually transmit because uh, it doesn't take a lot of it to get infected. So the size of the inoculum, uh, how many bacteria it actually takes to cause infection, the, the number for Shigella is only between 10 to 200. So if you think about the size of bacteria, I mean, microscopic, incredibly small, and it only takes 10 to 200 of these to actually get infected, so not a very large bacterial load. Uh, there's also uh, a, couple of another a couple of other reasons why infection happens uh, pretty frequently with this type of bacteria. Uh, it has a really low sensitivity to stomach acid, so some bacteria can't thrive in highly acidic environments. Stomach acid, uh, the pH is about 1.5 to 3.5. Uh, if you're not familiar with the pH scale, it's a measurement of acidity. Uh, it goes from 0 to 14. Uh, the lower it goes, the more acidic an environment. Something like hydrochloric acid, I think, is a, a pH of 0, where something like a, like a drain cleaner, like Drano, has a pH of, pH of 14, so it's incredibly basic. Uh, the human, uh, human blood, typically is uh, 7.35 to 7.45 so it's kind of a neutral like neutrals around seven that's what water usually is you know you see alkalized water which has a higher ph but uh anyway this bacteria can survive uh in those stomach acids uh, like i said a ph below three uh, not a lot of bacteria can do that uh, it also does a pretty good job of evading uh just proteins in our body that uh kind of trigger our immune system, the immune reaction. It has a good way of downregulating these antibacterial proteins uh, within the host. So that's another way that it's able to evade death and uh, continue to spread and cause infection. So exactly how does it, let's say you get, you know, a little, little Shigella bacteria into you. Let's, let's talk about the trip that it takes from, uh, from poop to mouth. So, or from a, you know, a fly that lands on your lettuce and spreads it and you eat your lettuce and it goes in. So it gets in the stomach eventually. Like I said, it survives that acidic environment, uh, migrates into the small intestine. Uh, once you're in the small intestine, it starts to cause a little bit of cell injury. It does this a couple of different ways. Uh, there are complications. The first one, it creates an immune response. So your body will recognize that it is there eventually. But uh, unfortunately, with like a lot of bacteria or viral infections that we see, this complicates things because the body's immune response, not only does it try to kill the bacteria, but it also hurts the cells and the mucosa of the intestines. Uh, secondarily, it produces endotoxins that are actually absorbed into the intestinal lining. So these endotoxins create more of an inflammatory response, uh, damaging tissue even further. So once in the small intestine, causes damage there, but then it migrates even further into the large intestines. Uh, there's a process called transcytosis. Uh, this is where it's able to transport itself through the epithelium or the, the cell lining, the tissue lining in the uh, intestine. And here's where it still kind of plays tricks on the body. Uh, 
It does use M cells, which are immune cells. Uh, these usually trigger immune activation, uh, and they do this in the intestinal lymphoid tissues by recognizing that there's an antigen. Uh, the problem with this, though, is it, once again, triggers this immune response. It sends out these cells. This starts to damage the cell lining. That cell lining in and of itself breaks down. These cells are destroyed that actually have the bacteria in it, but the bacteria still survive. So kills these cells with bacteria, but the bacteria spreads even further. And this kind of has like a domino effect where it keeps happening. So all this tissue keeps getting destroyed and destroyed by the body's own response by trying to kill the actual bacteria. Uh, this injury eventually gets to a point where it uh, causes impaired absorption. So your body's not able to absorb water or nutrients. And this is what actually causes the diarrhea, which is kind of one of the hallmarks of uh, the Shigella bug, and Shigellosis, or the uh, Shigella infection. She's got diarrhea. Uh, the endotoxins that it produces also play a huge part in this type of infection. Uh, they have two endotoxins. They're, uh, they're enterotoxin 1 and enterotoxin 2. Uh, this also plays a pretty big part uh, just in that fluid and nutrient absorption uh, associated with the diarrhea. Uh, the Shigella dysentery that I talked about, uh, one of those serotypes, this is also responsible just for a cell toxicity and it creates these vascular lesions. And that's what actually causes uh, that bloody diarrhea. And this can also affect the kidneys as well, uh, which can cause a, there's, it's rare, but it does happen. There's a complication called hemolytic uremic syndrome, which I'll talk about in a minute. And this can actually cause the, the kidneys themselves to kind of shut down and have somebody go into kidney failure. So maybe I have Shigella, maybe I don't. How would I tell? What symptoms would I have? Well, there's a, you know, they range from mild abdominal discomfort, so it might not be that bad, just to a severe abdominal pain. Uh, you're going to see this in about 70 to 90% of cases will have some kind of abdominal pain associated with it. Uh, diarrhea, 70% you know, to 80% of cases. And then uh, bloody diarrhea happens in about 30 to 50% of those cases. So like I said, diarrhea is a, a predominant uh, symptom in this. can also have a fever and nausea, vomiting, uh, anorexia, so not wanting to eat. There's also lethargy. Uh, rare symptoms, you can have delirium, uh, encephalopathy, uh, inability to urinate seizures, and uh, coma. And a lot of these symptoms, though, are kind of related to the fluid and electrolyte loss. Uh, sodium plays a huge part in your brain. A lot of times seizure activity uh, is usually from sodium imbalances. And you'll see that uh, that's another big uh, side effect of Shigella and Shigellosis is you can have a hyponatremia, which is a, just a loss of uh, sodium in your body. Some of these vital signs, if you're doing a physical examination on this, um, they might have a fever. They'll probably have a, a really fast heart rate, so tachycardia, uh, tachypnea, so breathing really fast. And they might have low blood pressure too. And once again, these are pretty much related just to dehydration, uh, probably from the diarrhea. And just the, the hypotension is from uh, what we call hypovolemia, so volume loss, which can also happen from uh, the diarrhea from not just fluid, but if you're bleeding as well from the blood loss. Uh, if you're still doing a physical examination, the abdomen, uh, it may be a little distended, so a big swollen stomach, and you'll have kind of hyperact hyperactive bowel sounds. So if you ever get an opportunity to get your hands on a stethoscope and listen to bowel sounds, uh, it can be pretty interesting. Typically, 
there'll be some with normal bowel tones. You'll hear them, I can't, I can't remember, it's already 10 to 15 seconds. Uh, some of if they're hyperactive would be much, much more frequently than that, and hypoactive uh, much less than that. But uh, with any kind of abdominal issue, especially with diarrhea, things are going to be moving pretty fast in the stomach. You'll have a lot of motility, so you'll hear a lot of, uh, a lot of movement with those bowel tones. Stomach may be a little bit tender as well, uh, especially in the lower abdomen. Once you get into the intestinal area, uh, smaller and uh, upper and, sorry, <laughs> your small and large intestine. Uh, so complications that can come from this too. So, you know, you have these bad vital signs, you, you have a lot of diarrhea, you're not able to hold anything down, keep anything in. So there's a lot of intestinal complications that can happen. So you can have a perforation of your colon uh, this is pretty rare, uh, but it does happen in infants, I guess, and a lot of malnourished patients. And this is usually associated with uh, the serotypes of flexneri and dysentery. Uh, you can also have an intestinal obstruction. Uh, this is usually seen with uh, dysentery as well. There is a, there's a complication called toxic megacolon, which is actually the name of one of my fantasy football teams. Uh, toxic megacolon usually happens with uh, the dysentery one infection as well. And you can get a proctitis or a kind of a rectal prolapse. Uh, this doesn't happen very often either, but this is when uh, the Shigella organism kind of invades the colonic mucosa and it kind of leads to that rectal prolapse and proctitis. It's usually, this is seen in infants and, and young children as well. So um, this definitely affects children more than adults. Uh, Bacteremia can happen, so systemic complications. So bacteremia is essentially when the, uh, the bacteria enters the bloodstream. And this is where you'll see sepsis, and a lot of times these have much worse outcomes. Uh, it's more commonly seen in younger children under the age of five. You can get that hemolytic uremic syndrome, or HUS, I talked about this earlier. So this is uh, the most frequent form of uh, acute kidney injury that happens in young children and infants. Uh, this happens, so essentially the bacteria gets in there, and it affects the small blood vessels in the kidneys. Uh, these either become damaged or inflamed, and the damage causes clot formation. Uh, the clots start kind of clogging up the whole kidney's filtering system, and this can lead to kidney failure. So uh, potentially life-threatening. I mean, the kidneys are so important uh, that when you have somebody with hemolytic uremic syndrome, it, it can be pretty dangerous and something that definitely needs to be treated in a hospital. Uh, other systemic complications, you can have a moderate to severe hypovolemia. So like I said, the, the volume, essentially fluid volume in the body, uh, and this can be secondary to the, the diarrhea. And if there's vomiting, uh, you're losing fluids that way, or if you're bleeding as well. Uh, the hyponatremia, so sodium levels that are really low. Uh, this is also usually associated with uh, the Shigella dysentery. You can also have neurologic symptoms. Uh, you can have generalized seizures. This is actually the most common neurologic complication. Uh, and when this is happening, you usually see a higher mortality rate uh, in that population. And like I said, this is when you start having issues with your electrolytes, especially something like sodium, uh, seizures can be a byproduct of that. There can be a reactive arthritis or a Reiter syndrome. Uh, this is usually caused by the Shigella flexneri infection. And uh, arthritis can either happen alone, but sometimes it's also seen, oddly enough, with a conjunctivitis or, uh, or urethritis. So uh, 
infection of your urethra or inflammation of your urethra. There can also be a valvovaginitis, which happens uh, with the diarrhea. A lot of times it's seen in younger girls. There can also be, uh, rarely, but this happens, uh, a keratitis, so it affects the eyes here. Uh, this usually doesn't happen, but if for whatever reason, uh, if you're a provider and you see a, you know, keratitis and they have a recent diarrheal illness, there's a possibility that Shigella could be the cause of that. And then there's also a, a risk of acute myocarditis. And this is usually seen with children who have the uh, Shigella sonai infection. So it can really cause a, a lot of problems. Um, it does have not an extremely high mortality rate, but uh, it definitely does uh, cause a lot of deaths, which we talk about epidemiology, I'll kind of go over that. So you've got all this stuff going on, you're pooping and it's, it's not good, you ate some sketchy food from a sketchy place, and now uh, you want to know if you have possibly uh, Shigella. So what kind of lab work gets done for this? Uh, anybody they suspect will have it will have a complete blood count done. So that'll kind of tell your white blood count, see if you have uh, any kind of uh, if a response from the body, uh, immune response. It can also check to see your, uh, your blood cell count to see if you have any blood loss. I mean, people who are, have bloody diarrhea, this is really important to make sure that you're checking their uh, hematocrit and their hemoglobin, uh, which are two indicators, which are kind of one indicates blood loss, but it also lets providers know if they would need any kind of a blood transfusion. Uh, a stool examination uh, will kind of uh, show white blood cells and blood in the poop. Uh, you know, microscopic evidence of stool can show, can show this pretty easily. Uh, and it gives a better yield than a rectal swab, getting it actually from the poop source. Uh, they'll check liver function tests just to make sure that uh, your bilirubin uh, isn't all out of whack. Uh, they'll check your kidney functions because as I said that hemolytic uremic syndrome can cause huge issues. Uh, it can also, so if, you have, if you're severely dehydrated, it can also affect uh, your kidney tests as well. And it can make it actually look like people, what we call an acute kidney injury, where they have uh, their BUN and their creatinine, which are two of the markers that we look at uh, just to see whether or not the kidneys are functioning properly and there can be you know multiple reasons why these are elevated but uh, dehydration especially in really young and really old patients uh, can happen pretty quickly and these are good indicators of that uh, they'll also check uh, your chemistries so uh, electrolytes uh, hyponatremia as i mentioned before with the sodium levels uh, being really low this is kind of common uh, they'll look for inflammatory markers they may check blood cultures to make sure that uh, the bacteria hasn't entered the bloodstream as well. And then for uh, actual determination of whether or not it's Shigella or not, uh, they'll do either uh, ELISA testing, uh, which can detect uh, dysentery, the S dysentery, pretty easily uh, from a stool sample, or you can do PCR testing. Uh, a lot of PCR is done today just because it's a kind of a gold standard. Um, uh, but uh, I don't think it absolutely has to be done with this. I think this can be done without doing PCR testing. So what if you have it? How do you treat it? Uh, treatment, there's a lot of supportive care for it. So when I say supportive care, it's really about treating the symptoms, uh, making sure hydration and electrolyte management are kind of top of the line there. Uh, in mild cases, some people are, do fine just with oral rehydration. They don't really need any kind of IV rehydration. Uh, antibiotics as well. Uh, so with antibiotics and Shigella, they kind of will separate it into two groups of how it's treated. Uh, 
So first thing, because there are uh, different strains of antibiotic resistant Shigella, they will actually do antibiotic susceptibility testing. So this is usually recommended, uh, especially in areas where you see a lot of resistance uh, to this bug. So with adults, uh, just to start out with, if you don't really know the, you know, the specificity yet, just empirically, just to cover, uh, they will usually do fluorochloroquine. Uh, this is for patients who have no risk factors uh, you know, for resistance, uh, or cephalosporins for high-risk patients. These patients, uh, for the cephalosporins, you'll usually see this in the more underdeveloped countries, so Africa and Asia. People who have been internationally traveling as well sometimes, they'll kind of pick up uh, these uh, resistant strains of Shigella. And then for people who are immunocompromised, so HIV-infected patients, and then I guess even now they're recommending that uh, just men who have sex with men, because they're seeing it more commonly in that population, they'll recommend the cephalosporins as well. Uh, as soon as you're able to actually get, uh, when they specify what type of Shigella it is, whether or not it is uh, susceptible to you know, specific antibiotics or if it's drug resistant, as soon as you find out what it is, they'll change the antibiotics just to make sure that they're you know, covering correctly. Because uh, that's kind of how these, you know, these, anti, these drug resistant strains happen, is they're treated with either multiple antibiotics or the wrong antibiotic for a long period of time. They build a resistance to that. Um, they can either mutate or they survive those antibiotics. They're able to pass it on when they end up kind of reproducing. So. Uh, making sure that that is correct is, is very important uh, to know what they're susceptible to. Uh, second generation cephalosporins are like ampicillin and Bactrim. Uh, these can also be used for Shigella uh, if the susceptibility is known. So for kids, it's a, a little bit different. The first line drug they use is azithromycin. Uh, and this is if the, if the antibiotic susceptibility is known. You know, make sure you know it's not uh, azithromycin resistant. Uh, you can also use cefixime and ceftibutin can be used as first-line antibiotics to treat Shigella. Uh, a lot of times this is used in South Asia uh, just due to the widespread resistance of commonly used antibiotics there. Uh, there is an also an, an alternative regimen uh, which uses pimesilinum, uh, which is an extended spectrum penicillin. Uh, this is effective and really cutting down on uh, the duration of diarrhea and eradicating the Shigella as well from the stool. Uh, IV antibiotics are usually indicated for children uh, when they have Shigella, especially if they have a severe infection or even signs of bacteremia. And anybody who has kind of underlying immune deficiency, including AIDS, they'll recommend the IV antibiotics as well. Uh, people who can't take oral medication because they're either too sick, they can't hold anything down, um, they'll also usually be treated with antibiotics IV, and usually ceftriaxone uh, is an antibiotic that would be recommended for that. So, so that's kind of a treatment, you know. Uh, it is fairly easily treated, like I said, not, uh, it, it's not, it doesn't have an exceptionally high mortality rate, but there are a lot of deaths annually because it is so common. So uh, as far as the epidemiology goes, uh, Worldwide, there are about 180 million cases a year. So, and of those, about 1 million deaths annually. So there's still a million people who die from Shigella each year. Uh, most of these happen in underdeveloped countries. Uh, 
And when I say most, I do mean that most. Uh, in developed countries, we're talking about 1.5 million cases per year out of 188 million. So uh, mainly in these underdeveloped areas, that's where you're seeing the majority of these cases. Here in the United States, uh, there's about 450,000 cases annually. And uh, the majority of the cases in the U.S. are usually caused by that Shigella Sonai strain. So 77% of those. And uh, if you remember from the, the top of the show, uh, the Sonai uh, serotype, it just has less severe symptoms. So you're not going to have the bloody diarrhea. Um, and it may, you know, it's much easily treated just with supportive care. May not even need antibiotics for it. Uh, the serotype that does cause, you know, diarrhea in developing countries would be uh, the Flexneri strain. And uh, this does cause dysentery and bloody diarrhea, but seen much less commonly than the Sonai. Uh, it is more common in young children. Uh, most cases are actually reported in children younger than 11 years old. With regard to the underdeveloped regions, uh, Shigella is it's the most common cause of diarrheal illness in children younger than five, uh, especially in areas of Saharan Africa and South Asia. Uh, Shigella does not discriminate. Uh, there's no real gender predominance uh, or racial predilection for Shigella. It affects everybody equally, uh, at least the, you know, depending what region of the world you live in. So. Uh, in the United States, uh, it is pretty common in daycare centers, actually, and residential institutions, uh, just because there is so much shared, you know, sharing of germs in all those places. I don't have children, um, but I have plenty of friends who do, and it seems like they're always, you know, getting sick from something their kid brings home from the daycare. So uh, it should also be noted that the foodborne transmission uh, has been reported in the United States before. So. Uh, there have also been outbreaks of Shigella that occurred in men who have sex with men. Uh, and more recently, there have been more of the antibiotic-resistant strains as well, which I, I'll have some data on that in, uh, in just a couple minutes here. Uh, more recently, the CDC has observed that uh, the increase in antimicrobial-resistant Shigella infections are affecting adults more, uh, where it was, you know, we see it a lot in children. The, the antimicrobial resistant strains are being seen more in adults. Uh, homeless populations are seeing an uptick. Uh, as I mentioned, men who have sex with men, so gay and bisexual uh, populations are seeing an uptick in it. International travelers, so you're seeing a lot of people come back from other countries uh, that are where Shigella is far more predominant. Uh, they're bringing that back into the country. And then uh, people with HIV, so uh, immunocompromised individuals as well, they're seeing just more cases of this uh, antimicrobial-resistant Shigella in these populations. Uh, to talk a little bit about those, uh, these XDR strains, the antibiotic, the, the resistant drug strains, we'll call them XDRs for right now, uh, the CDC, they actually reported an increase uh, in zero cases in 2015 uh, to five case five percent of cases in 2020, so it's it might not seem like a huge number. It's only a five percent increase in cases, but uh, when you think about just a short period of time, that's only seven years that that happened. So it's something that you know we need to keep an eye on it and just be more vigilant about how these are being treated. Uh, like more specifically, uh, January 1st, 2015, 
and January 22nd, 2023. So these are really recent numbers. The CDC had reports of 239 separate cases of this, uh, these XDR Shigella isolates. So it's becoming a little bit of an issue. Um, like I said, these, they're just harder to kill. Uh, the Shigella Sonai was the largest percentage of these. That was 66%. And then the Flexneri was about 34% of these cases. So really just those two serotypes. But uh, they're definitely gaining more resistance to antibiotics that we're using. So, and, you know, because, like I said, not a lot of cases in the U.S. each year, only 450,000. But if you think about worldwide, how there's 188 million cases, uh, very easily, this is a, a bacteria that could gain resistance to a, a broad number of antibiotics, becoming harder and harder to treat, uh, and becoming more deadly. Uh, median age of patients, uh, who these numbers came from here in the U.S., it was 42 years old. So like I said, something that you know you see a lot in children, uh, these drug-resistant strains were infecting adults more frequently. Um, among the 232 patients that this information came from, 82% uh, were men, 13% uh, were women, and 5% were children. So, like I said, really low numbers uh, for kids in this. So, with the drug-resistant strains, uh, something to watch out for. Uh, and it, so, the you know men who have sex with men as well. Um, of the forty-one patients in this study who answered questions about sexual activity, eighty-eight percent of those were male-to-male -male sexual contact. So, I think that's where kind of the red flag came up, where just to kind of alert that population that you know this is being spread. Uh, you know, and, and just to be a little more vigilant uh, and, you know, always try and be safe. So what about prevention? Uh, frequent hand washing. As I always mention at the end of my show, wash your hands. Uh, soap and water, uh, especially after using the bathroom or preparing food. Uh, food handlers obviously uh, shouldn't be engaged in food preparation if they have shigella or if they have diarrhea or if they're sick at all. Uh, Supervised hand washing of children in daycare centers would be helpful. I don't know how well that will go. Uh, or at homes with, uh, you know, children who aren't toilet trained. Uh, it's another way this stuff gets spread. Anybody who has Shigella, obviously, uh, try and stay away from handling or sharing food with anybody else. Children who have diapers uh, and have the disease or special precautions to actually get rid of that stuff. Uh, if you're in an underdeveloped country and you really don't have a clean water drinking source, if you can, obviously try to drink water that's been boiled or treated. Uh, don't eat any raw or poorly handled food, especially from uh, you know street vendors. There's always a, you know you always hear jokes and uh, about India, like Indian food giving people diarrhea. And uh, I don't know, I, I don't want to sound. I'm not trying to culturally appropriate anybody, but. Uh, and dysentery uh, and uh, shigella uh, will certainly cause diarrhea if the food is not handled correctly. So uh, for anybody who's, you know, planning to have uh, sexual intercourse that, you know, could spread uh, shigella, uh, you want to avoid sexual contact with anybody who is having diarrhea or covered from a, you know, recovering from a diarrheal illness uh, and always practice safe sex too. It's a, a good way to avoid that. Um, people should always uh, avoid swimming in pools as well if they have diarrhea, just because you never know what you're going to spread and who you're going to spread it to. So, so what about the prognosis for Shigella? So Shigella, like I said, 
pretty good prognosis for most people who get it. Uh, there are definitely populations that are more at risk, uh, but the you know prognosis pretty good. Uh, not even with not a lot of treatment. Like I said, supportive treatment can really handle a lot of this. Some people, what you should not do if you have Shigella uh, or some of these gut bugs, uh, you know, even with food poisoning, is take anti-diarrheal medications. It, it might sound like a good idea because you don't want to, you know, poop your brains out. But at the same time, it's going to take longer for that bacteria to actually be removed from the body. Uh, in clinical practice, until we know our patient doesn't have one of these gut bugs, if they have diarrhea, we won't give them anything to stop it. So uh, we'll see uh, C. difficile is another one of these enterobacteria that's hard to kill and it spreads pretty easily in hospitals. And we need to make sure that they have a negative uh, C. diff culture before we'll give them kind of any anti-diarrheals because it just prolongs that course of the bacteria actually getting out of the body and it could take longer for it to actually resolve. So, uh, you know, diagnosed and treated on time, uh, prognosis is good. Patients usually recover without any issues. Uh, there are poor prognostic factors though. Uh, anybody who's immunocompromised can be really hard to treat. A prolonged duration of the disease, so if you've been dealing with this for more than a week now, uh, your mortality goes up in that uh, case. And then obviously, as with most infections, uh, extremes of age, so the older you are, the younger you are, uh, can lead to severe disease and uh, further complicate things and increase mortality. So with mortality on our mind, let's take a look at our death count. So this is actually going to be a pretty big one. So we're looking at a million deaths per year from Shigella, which is pretty significant. Uh, if we go back, let's say we go back 10,000 years, the, the civilized time of man when we were all sharing food and water. And I know this is going to be probably more than, you know, more of an exaggeration because the world wasn't as populated. But let's say we go back 10,000 years, 1 million people per year, that's 10 billion deaths. So as we like to do on this show, just to kind of, uh, just to kind of illustrate how deadly some of these bacteria and viruses and microorganisms can be and have been throughout the years. We are going to take the number of deaths we have, uh, take our dead bodies, and we will try to try to stack them to the moon. We'll try to see how many times we can reach the top of the Empire State Building. And then we'll take a look and see if we can wrap our dead around the Earth. So, as usual, we'll take a you know the average height of a person, five foot five inches. Uh, I know this is skewed as well in this case because a lot of these deaths were probably children, but uh, just, you know, play along. Um, we get uh, a total number of, it's 54,167,000,000 feet. We'll cut that down to miles. And we get, uh, what do we get here? 10,258,901 miles of dead people. So if we're trying to stack our dead to the moon, uh, the moon's... 238,900 miles away. We could actually reach the moon almost 43 times with the amount of people that have died from Shigella. Uh, if we're trying to reach the top of the Empire State Building, this is 1,454 feet high, uh, we could reach the top, uh, we would have 37,253,782 Empire State Buildings. And then, if we were trying to wrap our dead around the Earth, uh, so the Earth has a circumference of uh, 24,900 miles. 
So we could actually circle the uh, globe about 412 times with the amount of people that have died from Shigella. So Shigella, you know, it still kills a lot of people every year, has, I'm assuming, for a very long time. And like I said, as I mentioned before, in, in developed countries, there's only about 1.5 million cases. In these underdeveloped countries, it's the remaining 186.5 million cases a year. So uh, really crazy. You know, Shigella, there's... This is another one of these bacteria It spreads so easily uh, and is getting harder to kill because of the antibiotic resistance that it's gaining. So it's important just to keep an eye on that. Uh, here in America, it's just not something I don't think we worry about that often. Uh, it's not something that's super common. It's something that we can easily seek treatment. But for, for other people, especially in Africa and uh, in parts of Asia, uh, they just don't have the, the resources. And like I said, especially in really young and really old people who can't tolerate this, well, it, it can be pretty deadly. So, but that's Shigella in a nutshell. So, uh, anybody who has any suggestions, please let me know. Uh, I'm open to anything. Uh, I might do, my next one might not be a bacteria or a virus. I haven't done any molds or fungus yet. Maybe a mold or a fungus. Um, but I'm also thinking about maybe doing like a heavy metal Excellent. toxicity because uh, heavy metals can really make you sick and some of the ways they treat them are pretty interesting. So, But anyway, uh, let me know if you have any feedback. Uh, once again, you can be reached at uh, youmakemesickpod at gmail.com or uh, at makemesickpod on Twitter. Uh, I appreciate uh, all my new Twitter followers. I think I'm up to seven now. So that... Uh, that's always something that, uh, I don't know, I don't have a wide scope here. Uh, I, don't, I try to keep my tweets relevant as far as uh, pathogens. Occasionally I'll throw some stuff out there that uh, doesn't really relate to it. But uh, give a little shout out to, uh, to Miles, King of Naps, Hallowed Be Their Name, uh, to Designer Lady, to Candy Kring, uh, to Christy Meyer, and I think, yeah, I think that's uh, the latest that I've got right here. So thank you all. Uh, uh, thanks, everybody else, uh, for listening. And uh, remember, especially after listening to this episode, wash your hands. Diarrhea. Running down the gutter with a piece of bread and butter. Diarrhea. Diarrhea. Running down the gutter with a piece of bread and butter. Diarrhea. Diarrhea.